0: Something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question Podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Christy Bryant speaks for trees every day. She loves to be in a person's yard meeting their dogs and talking about what is best for their trees. Climbing to the highest heights and exploring soil depths is important to her for a complete understanding of each tree's optimum health needs. Thirteen years as a consulting arborist, Christy stays up to date on the latest tree research and what trees love and desire. Her tree consulting company is called Speaking for the Trees. She believes it is important to know a tree's potential by performing a tree risk assessment and a real estate due diligence inspection. As past president of the Georgia Arborist Association, She advocates for trees and the professionals that take care of them. She earned a bachelor's degree in environmental horticulture from the University of Georgia. is a Georgia-certified landscape professional, ISA-certified arborist, and a trained horticultural therapist, Christy has appeared as a tree expert on the Weather Channel, various local news outlets, and WSB Radio Saturday morning garden show, Green and Growing, with Ashley Frasca. This is episode 114, The Marvels of Trees, exploring their beauty, diversity, and importance with Christy Bryant. This is an encore presentation and remix of episode seven. Christy, what are the benefits to including trees in a landscape?
1: That would include all of the benefits of trees. They uh, slow down water, uh, rainfall, they reduce erosion, they cool the atmosphere. They transpirate and actually cool us. They provide nice shade in the summer, houses for bugs and birds and bees, and they're very, very, very important.
0: I can't imagine a world without trees. What is an arborist?
1: Think about an arborist as being the doctor, your primary care physician that you go to. If you had a tree that was sick, or if you needed to have some trees checked out because you're about to buy a house, or you have a tree that you're scared of, I would come out. I would be the doctor that would diagnose. Then I might send in the tree surgeons to do some pruning on it, and then I might send in a prescribing arborist to provide some treatments.
0: How do you speak for trees?
1: I try to educate as much as I possibly can, every place that I can, all the times that I can. I'm at the bar on a Saturday night talking about trees. I tell everybody what I do because everybody has a tree question, right? Third time, I'm the president of the Georgia Arborist Association, and one of my biggest goals is to get more in front of the consumer because I feel like the only way our industry will improve and become safer is if we change the way the clients look at how tree work is done. If more people recognize that we don't prune with spikes, people would tell those people to get out of their yard. Those people wouldn't have jobs and the industry would automatically improve. That's just about how I speak for trees. Why do trees fall? Mostly because of human interaction. We create wounds in trees. We run over the roots with our cars. All of that weakens the tree and allows natural things to come in and take over before it's really the tree's time. That's mostly why trees die. Dr. Coder says that 85% of urban soils are compacted, and soil compaction is the number one killer of trees.
0: Tell us about your garden at your house.
1: I have the plumber's pipe, so the mechanic's car. I like to torture trees to see what they do. (laughs) because I learned from it. I live downtown, and sadly, I only have one 30-inch water oak, but I do get to enjoy my neighbor's pecan and post oaks. I just started bonsai, so my my house is just about covered in bonsai stuff now. Just another way to love trees. I do my flowers mostly. It's mulch. I believe in mulching under trees. I believe in mulch for all landscape plants. I also have Great Danes, so I am a firm believer in mulch.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I would think that would solve a lot of problems and also give you a lot of benefits for all the plants. How do you mulch? What type of mulch do you use and how do you know if it's enough or you need to add more?
1: I try to always match the mulch to the tree type, meaning if we're in a pine straw bed, let's do pine straw. Because Mother Nature has perfectly designed those leaves or those needles to break down and provide the perfect nutrients to that plant or tree. It's amazing the way it works. I like to do that. I don't want to do more than four inches deep and any kind of mulch. Pine straw, you can go a little bit deeper because it's more open and and has more air pockets. A lot of arborists don't want it to even touch the trunk of the tree because the thing is the microorganisms that are breaking down the mulch and making them into perfect soil can also move into the bark of the tree and affect the tree. I don't argue with people about it. I'm like, dude, just mulch. I'm not going to argue with you about how close to the trunk, just keep it mulched.
0: Yeah, I have friends that that are in the tree business. My standing order is, if you're in my neighborhood, dump your stuff at my house. I have four acres. I've turned a lot of red clay into brown soil just because of that mulch and keeping it refreshed. It's amazing how it breaks down and improves that soil.
1: Yeah, it changes it. The house I've been in for six years and I've mulched everywhere, and there is nowhere that you can dig down in this yard and not get eight or ten earthworms per shovel full.
0: If you got earthworms, you got it going right. When I hear the word fungus, I always have a negative connotation or used to have a negative connotation about fungus, thinking, Well, we've got to kill that, it's bad for the plants. But actually as I've learned more about it, there's a lot of good fungus. How does fungus play a role in trees?
1: The fungus you're referring to is the underground fungus is occasionally shows up as chanterelle mushrooms, but for the most part we don't know is there until you go dig. If you think about digging in tree roots and you it's the tree roots, the feeder roots of the tree are actually like the black, dark color ones. But if you pull through there and you get that white, it looks like exactly like a root, but it's white. That is actually mycorrhiza, And what mycorrhiza does is it is a beneficial fungi. They have a symbiotic relationship with the tree, meaning they get to get sugars from the roots. And in exchange for that, they extend the root system of the tree. They help it break down nutrients and draw in water. They actually are very beneficial to trees, and there are actually some plants that cannot survive without a mycorrhizae.
0: They connect up different trees, too.
1: There is a lot of evidence that is proving that trees communicate through this mycorrhizal network. If you wanted to think about that, the brain of the tree, and research is showing that the brain, and they do think, and they do feel, and they do respond, and they do care for each other. All of that is done in that mycorrhizal network which I believe is one reason urban trees struggle so hard is because they're just this one lone tree that doesn't have the benefit of all that stuff.
0: That makes a lot of sense. That's so cool. They communicate with each other. That's fascinating. It really is.
1: It is. They're the coolest things. Like I, <laughs> I love trees. I just love trees.
0: How have you grown since your first horticulture class? Now, I don't know how many years ago that was, but I, I know you've got a degree in it. How have you grown since then?
1: Oh my gosh. I think back to the mistakes I made. I remember sitting in arborist class, thinking back to the things I had done to trees when I was a landscaper. And I was like, I just wanted to hide under the table. So I mean, you learn, you grow, you know, the tree industry, what we know about tree and tree research is a pretty relatively young field. Most of what we know was learned by Alex Scheiko back in the early 80s. So it's a pretty young, not profession obviously. The research into trees is pretty young. Let me put it that way have to constantly keep up with classes. I have to constantly keep up with CEUs. I mean, your arborist friend in your yard has to get 10 CEUs a year just to continue to stay an arborist because education is so important. Because the things that we thought when I started in arboriculture eight years ago, it was you just automatically cut off water sprouts. Now the research is showing that the tree knows what it's doing and it puts those leaves by that new wound specifically so it can draw in and put the sugar straight to the ceiling off wood.
0: I remember they were saying, well, those water sprouts aren't valuable, but they have proven to be so. Yeah. Christy, what is your most valuable garden mistake?
1: Oh, when I was just a baby landscaper and not yet an arborist, I tried to give the client what they wanted, grass pretty close to a forest. You know, I just did all the mistakes. I ran that bobcat over the tree roots. I ran right up to the tree roots and graded back. And when I was in arborist school thinking about that yard, I was just like, God, I feel so bad can't even remember where it was. Probably my biggest mistake.
0: You're talking about grass under trees and people desiring that. How do you get grass to grow under trees?
1: You don't. You create bedlines around the trees as close to the, the outside of the drip line as you can. Then you put grass everywhere else. And there's a multitude of reasons for that. A, we just talked about mulch and how important it is for trees. B, the lawnmower running over, the aerator running over, and the chemical applications applied to turf are all very bad for trees.
0: Can you do any planting under a tree?
1: Yes, but I prefer that they be installed in the smallest size possible so that you're destroying less of the feeder roots. The feeder roots, the most important part of the tree, are only in this top six to eight inches of soil here in our clay soils. What happens is every time you plant a four and a half inch pachysandra or a three gallon azalea is you're destroying a three gallon area of the root or in a four and a half inch pot of, I don't know, 14 flats of grass and pachysandra. That really destroys the roots under the tree. When I write a prescription on a tree going under construction, nobody can plant under the tree for the first two years because trees really suffer from construction for two full years after construction. What
0: do you need to pay attention to when you're trenching for irrigation and utility lines in regards to a tree?
1: The trees have two root systems. They have the feeder root system, which is a small, very delicate root. If those roots can't grow, they die. And if they don't have oxygen pockets, they can't grow. Then we also have the structure root systems of the tree, and all they do, they're connected to the branch, the trunk. Their job is to hold the tree up and make them secure in the ground. When we trench, we destroy both root systems, and we can potentially cause a tree to fail if we cut too many of those roots.
0: And how long do you think it takes for a tree to fail in a
1: situation like that? It depends. It depends how many trees were removed around it at the same time, because these irrigation installs are usually part of a big landscape usually precursed by somebody having to remove a big tree and the dynamic of the landscape changes, right? So it's usually part of a big thing. Usually two to three years is the normal failure time. A lot faster if you're a Leland cypress that just had all your friends removed and the storm comes by three weeks later, you probably are going to lose your Leland cypress because mm-hmm. they're just prone to turn over anyway. It's also species dependent.
0: It's not evident when you do the damage. It takes time, and you you might not even relate that back to the damage that was done three, four, five years before.
1: Yeah, and that's the big problem is people don't correlate tree death with construction or landscape installs. They just don't. They don't think about it because usually it's two to three years. Pine beetles move in or ambrosia beetles move in, and they kill the tree, and everybody's like, the beetles killed the tree. And I'm like, no, the construction killed the tree. The beetles just finished it off.
0: Let's play a game. It's fill in the blank. And this is you. If I could add any tree to my landscape garden, it would be a... Bald cypress. Why?
1: Because they can survive nearly anything. Okay. And they're kind of straight up in pyramidal, so they're not so wide. My second would be a magnolia. But guess what? Nobody has room for a southern magnolia or a bracken brown. Nobody has room for them. Right. So, you know, the bald cypress, they're just amazing. And they take pruning and they take dry soil and they take drought and they take wet soil. And they're amazing.
0: Are they deciduous or evergreen? They are deciduous. The structure on those is pretty cool in the winter, too, I think.
1: I think they're gorgeous trees, and I love it when they make the knees, Yeah, which they only do in wet soils. They don't do that when you put them in dry locations. It's it's just fascinating. Uh,
0: Who benefits from your tree work the most, you or your client?
1: (laughs) Probably me. (laughs) I'm one of the few people in this world that gets to get up and love what I do every day.
0: Yeah. How do you enjoy it?
1: I love people and I love dogs. And so it's like every yard, I get to meet a person, meet a dog and talk about trees. Like, come on. I'm surprised I'll make people pay me for this. If I was independently wealthy, I wouldn't. I mean, like what's not to love?
0: What are the tools that an arborist has in their toolbox to make trees better?
1: Live in Atlanta, what I deal with mostly is trees under construction and trees in an urban environment. Even like downtown Marietta, that's kind of an urban environment, right? So I'm talking about non-forested trees. We have all kinds of things we can do. If you start seeing mistletoe, we can climb the tree and we can put growth regulator on the mistletoe while we get the tree healthy. We have the ability to almost slow the growth of the tree to nothing to A, make it healthier and B, make it fit in the spot that you put it in. We have mycorrhiza injections. We have fertilizer injections. We have air spades. So if you do compact your soil, I have a tool I can go out there and I can put air pockets in the soil so that what you did to your tree I can fix. We can air spade so that you can figure out where your irrigation lines need to be without destroying the tree roots with the shovel. We've got all kinds of stuff that we can do for trees now and more and more stuff is coming.
0: It's coming next.
1: One of the problems of course in Georgia is that we have very heavy clay soils. Now it's very good for holding nutrients, but very bad for compacting. What I think is I'm coming next and a couple companies are making this is where they actually put the aggregate into the soil. So they blow in air into the soil and it creates pockets. And then we blow an aggregate, expanded slate or gypsum or granular fertilizer mix, maybe even mixed with expanded slate so that that prevents that from just closing right back down. That's one of the coolest things that I'm seeing coming to the market. They're working really, really hard on a fungicide that can translocate, meaning we can treat your insects pretty dang easy, but by translocating the chemical through the plant and then the little aphid bites the plant, they get the poison and they die. We don't have that ability in fungicide yet. Nobody's been able to create a fungicide that actually moves through the leaf reliably and deals with the fungus bad fungus is not mycorrhizae. Funguses are the worst thing we deal with. If you think about black spot on roses, you think about leaf spot on Indian hawthorns, leaf spot on hydrangeas, mark my words, we've had so much rain, funguses are going to be uncontrollable this summer.
0: Yeah, what is it tight to get a fungus?
1: Patience. So say you have dogwood anthracnose on your dogwood. You have to spray with a contact fungicide right before the buds break. Three weeks later, And three weeks later, because we can't kill the fungus, but what we can do is we can suppress those spores, This is how they replicate themselves. That's all you can do. And then you pray. We can get the plant healthy so that the plant can fight it off better. And that's the key to almost anything in horticulture is if you just get the plant healthy and you put it in the right place, most of the time it can deal with its own issues.
0: I agree. i bought and sold a lot of real estate through the years. I know that do your due diligence during those times and where you're checking out the house systems and the roof and different things like that. But I wasn't aware or never thought about doing due diligence on the trees on my property. How does that work?
1: I'm actually doing two of those this afternoon. The way it works is I have done tree estimates back when I was an estimating arborist. I did one estimate in MM Park, Atlanta, that was a $13,000 removal. Mm. It was a 56-inch tree Mm -hmm. with absolutely no access. That tree was going to have to be cut into pieces that they could put on their shoulders and carry out. The guy had just bought the house two weeks before. He could have bought two HVAC systems in that house for the same price that he had to pay to remove something. That would have been a pretty good negotiating piece when they were dealing with the contract. It's a big deal. Because tree removals can be very expensive. So it's very smart to get your trees checked out.
0: How does somebody realize they need to do that?
1: They have a client who calls them back and says, why the hell didn't you recognize that? I paid for a home inspection. Why do I have a (laughs) $6,000 tree removal two weeks after I bought the house? And they're like, uh. Good real estate agent, especially if they're selling a house in Grant Park or Inman Park or somewhere in the downtown area that has huge trees. They're pretty on it. I have great relationships with about 10 real estate agents. If they have more than one tree on site, they're on right. it. You know, they're like, no, 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 we're getting our due diligence inspection. There's too many trees here.
0: What causes tree roots to come to the soil surface?
1: Clay soils, they're basically all on the surface in Georgia. The traditional drawing of a tree that everybody thinks of when it shows the root system is almost absolutely incorrect. There's no reason for them to go deeper than eight inches. There's no nutrients down there. It's compacted. The Water doesn't get down there usually. That's why they keep their roots up because it's what makes sense. Trees are super smart. We have trees on this earth that have lived through ice ages.
0: I've heard that tap roots are a myth. What are your thoughts?
1: Dr. Coder and I have had discussions about this. Dr. Coder is, for everybody that doesn't know, the head of the University of Georgia Forestry Department, the Warnell School of, of Forestry. He has done a lot of research on trees. He says that once they're two years old, they lose their taproot. But I've been to Jekyll Island and I've walked out on Driftwood Beach, which is actually an eroding maritime forest can see those longleaf pines that have roots as big around as I am and go as far down as you can see from the erosions. I actually was at a class with Dr. Coder on Driftwood Beach and I was like, Dr. Coder, what is that? He's like, different soil type. That's what my answer was. Apparently in sandy soils, they do, but in place they don't. Yeah. And I'm just going to have to believe Dr. Coder because I can't go digging up <laughs> oak trees. And I'll tell you, in all the years of doing tree work and responding after storms, I've never seen a big old oak tree upturned with the taproot.
0: Right. It's just the root plate there and they flip up.
1: It's just a wide root plate. Yep.
0: What's the challenge on recycling nutrients with trees? First of all, what is recycling nutrients?
1: This is my favorite go-to saying is, what can I do for my tree? Replicate the forest. Taking the leaves away from the tree. If an HOA tells you to do it, it is almost always bad for your plants. (laughs) Yeah. Period. (laughs) Blow your leaf litter out, mulch it up in your yard and blow it back in and then put pretty mulch when they stop falling. Replicating the forest, the mulch layer, the leaf layer, it's the perfect nutrients that the tree needs when we have that nice mulch layer, little microorganisms are coming up from the soil and they're breaking that down and they're drawing those nutrients back with them. They're creating the perfect oxygen pockets in the soil so that those feeder roots that are so important can continue to grow. They provide the perfect nutrients. They insulate so that the tree doesn't have to deal with drought issues as much. I did a video with Jen Carfagna with a weather channel. I think we were four weeks into a drought. Maybe we had had a quarter of an inch of rain in four weeks and she lives on a creek and we went in her backyard reached down through eight inches of leaf litter, and I found wet leaves on the bottom.
0: That tree was insured against drying out with the drought. It was set up to do well in drought. That was just natural mulch.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. She had put nothing else on it. That was just the leaf litter.
0: How do you pick the right shade tree?
1: The first thing you do is establish the space that you have and compare that to the space of that tree at maturity, which is let's go, 20 years. We know that trees are continued to grow, but we can't plan for a 60-inch tree. It's just not possible. The chances of that tree making it to 60 inches are very few. My thing is match the site to condition. If you want to plant a shade tree in the bottom of the creek area, you probably need to go with a swamp white oak or a bald cypress or a red maple, somebody that knows how to live in water because it's not the best conditions. Strangely enough, those trees that are good in water are usually also good in very dry or hard areas because being a water tree kind of makes it tough.
0: How would you pick a understory tree? And tell us what an understory tree is.
1: An understory tree is a smaller tree that's average height that's 15 to 20 feet at maturity. We're talking red buds, We're talking dogwoods, we're talking stalwartias, some crepe myrtles, ironwoods. Those smaller trees of average maturity size is less than 20 to 25 feet.
0: How would you pick one for your conditions?
1: Quit putting dogwoods in the full sun. If you pay attention in the spring when they're blooming, I want you to look as you're driving down the road and I want you to see where everybody plants themselves. Then I want you to go make sure that you have a tree that you're putting in that kind of correct environment. Dogwoods suffer greatly in the full sun. Red buds do okay, but they really like somebody to give them at least a little bit of a break from the afternoon sun. Ironwoods like wet, and they like it shady, because if you think about where you see ironwoods, you're walking down on the mm-hmm. creek, and that's where you see that woods.
0: If you're putting a small tree like that in full sun, which ones could you do?
1: You could do something like a golden rain tree, although they're not super long-lived. Neither is a cherry, but everybody loves a cherry tree. But don't expect your cherry tree to live more than 30, 40 years. They get wide, but they don't get tall. But they tolerate full sun really well. You could do eastern red cedars. Those are nice native evergreens. I also consider an osmanthus a large tree because osmanthus fragrance gets 20 feet in maturity, and they're just amazing plants. I mean, you can't hurt a tea olive.
0: I don't know that I've ever seen a 20-foot osmanthus. I would like to see that. I'd like to smell that.
1: I've got a New Orleans. Oh, my gosh. I know their growing seasons longer than ours, but I planted some 15 gallons last year and they probably started at five feet and I'm looking at them now and we're probably looking at eight feet height already. Wow. Of course, again, I'm planting them in that groovy soil with all the earthworms and they've been mulched for it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Right conditions make a huge difference. What's your best tree advice to somebody designing and planning a landscape?
1: use a landscape designer or a landscape architect that has an experience in actually working in the field and maintaining. What I've found is landscape designers and landscape architects that don't have really any experience in the field have no idea what to plant where. And it's indicated by everywhere we drive, you pull in the shopping center and there's knockout roses planted under a red maple and I'm like, "So, full sun and shade. Come on, guys."
0: Major conflict. Yeah. Uh-
1: And it frustrates me because it's like, dude, y'all went to school for five years. Do this right. You have (laughs) one job. Know your plan. So that would be my biggest advice is find somebody that really has some experience in picking the plant material for the right place. If you really love a landscape architect because of their creative ability and you're not real confident in their plant picks, then run it by somebody that has more experience. Pay, you know, a consultant to take a look at that plan and to approve those plants.
0: I was noticing you're a horticultural therapist. What is a horticultural therapist?
1: It's people that use plants to work with people. So think motor skills, like if you're replanting plants, putting seeds in pockets for people with traumatic brain injuries. The elderly people raise gardens so you could work in a nursing home and assist people in doing their gardens and bringing in their vegetables and taking care of the plants. Sensory gardens, I've actually wrote a grant, was awarded the grant and got to install a sensory garden at a place where kids who were removed from their houses through defects came to get therapy and stuff, and they could go, and we had a bubbling rock and we had grasses that made noises when they moved, and we had gardenias and all the stuff that smells good. All the sensory gardens. a couple of schools have nice sensory gardens. They're nice, all designed and, and usually installed by horticultural therapists.
0: Okay. Would that be classified as a healing garden?
1: Yes. The Kennestone actually has two healing gardens. And I'm pretty sure they have a horticultural therapist on staff at Wellstar.
0: Okay. That's interesting.
1: People are really understanding how important being connected to all of this stuff is.
0: Yeah. I've noticed that this is becoming a bigger issue on that. It's having views of trees or plants or landscape from your home or from your office just makes a huge difference in productivity or people's health.
1: Yeah, I went to a horticulture conference with designers where this lady was presenting a study that they did in Portland, Oregon over like a 20-year period. They took neighborhoods with the exact same socioeconomic capacities at all different levels. They looked at a neighborhood that was an inner city area and the, nation, and the, and the demographics of this neighborhood were this versus a suburban neighborhood with the same amount of money. They compared these neighborhoods, trying to get them as even as possible. And then the only difference was the difference between a tree-lined neighborhood and a not tree-lined neighborhood. So think inner city Atlanta neighborhoods with these big, beautiful tree covers versus the suburban neighborhoods where they go in and take out a forest and give you one tree in your front yard. The difference was astounding. People were healthier. There were less doctor visits. People reported happier lives. The kids had better grades, all because they kept and had trees.
0: When I look at Atlanta, say, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, you know, trees weren't important. But now you go into Atlanta and it's just like there's a whole difference. And I guess this is all due trees, Atlanta.
1: Their ordinance was originally written like in 85. But here's the deal with Atlanta. Chicago has the river. Everybody else has their resources. Atlanta was a railroad town that was built up overnight. And we haven't thought yet. But because Mm -hmm. of a lot of these neighborhoods were built in the 20s and 30s before the advent of air conditioning, those trees were a very, very important resource because if you haven't been in Georgia in the summer, come on in August, you'll learn. You'll want to find a tree, I promise. They managed to figure out how to do construction Mm -hmm. around these big shade trees because they needed them. Then in the 50s, we've got cars, we've got interstates, we've got air conditioning. All this is happening at once and the building concepts just went to crap. It was, who cares about the trees? We need people. We're Atlanta. We're going to grow. We don't care about trees. I think in every municipality, the origins for tree ordinances really don't have anything to do with trees themselves. They have to do with stormwater management and they have to do with that kind of stuff. It's always about money. If we're removing trees, that city has to deal with four times the stormwater runoff. In fact, City of Roswell actually charges you on your impervious surfaces because they are having to deal with your water. You have to pay taxes on your driveway and your roofs in the city of Roswell because they have to deal with the water your roof and driveway cause. What solves that? Trees.
0: The trees are a solution for so many things. If You expressed it some already. told us the state and a little bit of history of trees in Atlanta, but what do you see as the future?
1: I hope to see, and I advocate for this, I hope to see... The urban planners looking at trees differently. Instead of putting a single tree in the front yard, why not give the kids the grass that they all want and just design differently? Push the houses up, remove the tree from the front yard and leave forest, just leave strips of forest between rows of houses. The kids can play soccer in the front yard and they can play hide and seek in the woods. The trees are where they're supposed to be. They're communicating with each other. They're living the life they're supposed to live. They're further away from houses. There's less danger of people getting hurt or houses getting hurt by trees. The trees are going to grow better. The neighborhood's going to be healthier. We just have to start thinking more intelligently about how we design.
0: Do you think it's all with the land designers or developers or somewhat uh, ordinance driven too?
1: Well, it's ordinance driven. And of course, the arboriculture community doesn't have money for lobbyists, but the building community does. So we very rarely even get a seat at the table to design the ordinances when we're the only ones that really have the experience to do it. Pretty frustrating that we're not offered a seat at the table. I mean, I'm the president of the Georgia Arborist Association, and I was not invited and have been for two, this is my third year, president the entire time that they're writing the tree ordinance. And nobody from the Georgia Arborist Association was invited to help out. And I consider that an um oversight. It, it's, 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 it's so bad. It's very disappointing.
0: Yeah. How do we get a seat at the table?
1: Well, um, we make sure to be citizen driven. All mm-hmm. change starts with people that pay the bills. I bet 90% of the Atlanta population right now doesn't even know that the tree ordinance is in its final draft and being decided on, nor that they know that there's no arborist involved. They know, and we do a petition, and they're like, holy crap, we need an arborist on this board. This is unexcusable Then an outside independent arborist. Of course, the city of Atlanta arborists are involved in the process, but I'm talking about an independent organization of arborists should get to say this. I'm a resident of the city of Atlanta. Nobody got invited to seat at the table. So what's it going to take? Getting the knowledge out there that, hey, this is unacceptable. What are we going to do? And it's going to take a concerned neighbor starting a petition and getting in front of the mayor and saying, absolutely not. This can't happen until somebody else is involved to look at it.
0: What other big tree issues do you see?
1: Unrecognized root decays. People think, oh, that mushroom is pretty. You know, they don't think, oh my God, that means my tree roots are decaying. It's just people just don't have good knowledge of trees. Mm-hmm. So they make mistakes like planting trees in volcanoes, like putting flowers under their trees, like putting up a brick edge and filling it with dirt and burying the, the, the root flare of the tree. 90% of what trees do and what they have to put up with is because of us.
0: You hit two things right there that I think we need to expand a little bit on. The problem is planting trees in volcanoes. What do you mean by that?
1: Again, let's go to the forest or let's just go to a tree that grew from a seed. When you go out there and you look at that tree, you can see it's not in the ground like a telephone pole. There's actually a flare or a widening where the tree hits the ground.
0: Like a wine glass.
1: Like a wine glass. Exactly right. If we bury that, the highest concentration of feeder roots, which are responsible for the health of the tree, are buried and they're compacted. Most of the time, people don't understand. They don't see the tree start suffering till the tree's been in the ground for five years because a young tree has a lot of energy and a lot of, it's like a toddler. You know, I can't, toddler just falls down. If I fell down like toddlers do, I couldn't get back up, right? Those young trees are toddlers and it takes a lot to hurt them. But when they hit about six or seven years of age, they're like, uh-oh. You start seeing lichen on them. You start seeing root. You start seeing leaf death. You start seeing small leaves. And that's all because of incorrect planting. The volcano is even worse because think about way trees grow. They grow flat out, right? So you put the tree in this volcano and so its trees have to grow out and then they have to go down. The tree roots go down. Yeah. And then usually they're going down into grass. Or even worse, what happens, especially with red maples in everybody's front yards, is they're very shallow rooted trees. River birches are the same way. And they're in half of the suburbanites in Atlanta, metro Atlanta's front yards river birches and red maples. So they're shallow rooted trees, which makes them tough, but means that you're running over them with a lawnmower because their, their, their roots leave the bed that they were originally designed in, usually a volcano area, and they can expand out. And the next thing you know, you're running over them with a lawnmower blade. And when I tell people, would you prune with a machete? And they're like, oh, no, that's crazy. And I'm like, but that's what you're doing. You're running lawnmower blade over the underground branches of a tree you're hitting it with a machete. And they're like, oh oh my gosh, what do I do? Expand the bed out. Mulch that bed, get rid of that grass.
0: When you mentioned volcanoes, I was thinking more of a mulch volcano, but I wasn't even thinking about a planting volcano.
1: Cobb County drives me crazy. You drive down the East-West Connector and every one of those trees is planted in a volcano. Yeah. Volcano mulching is very bad. What we're talking about is like six or eight inches of mulch up against the trunk of the tree and then tapering off almost like a donut or something. That's what you're talking about, a mulch. Now, this is why that's so bad, because that mulch, especially if you're using a hardwood mulch, not so much with pine straw. You're using a hardwood or a cypress mulch. What happens when you put it too deep is those feeder roots are like, we get a lot of rain in the spring. And those feeder roots are like, oh my God, look, look at all that oxygen and look at all that water. So the tree starts putting feeder roots up into this mulch layer. And then, like happens every year in Georgia, June or July comes and Mother Nature turns off the faucet three to four weeks without rain. Because they're not in dirt that's actually holding soil, all those feeder roots die because they're up in mulch. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? And when we lose roots, we lose leaves. When we lose leaves, we lose vigor and tree. And then it's just a spiral till the end.
0: You say losing vigor. What is that?
1: Vigor is the term that we use to refer to the size, shape, amount of leaves, just how healthy is the tree? What is the leaf vigor? Does it have the appropriate amount of branches and leaves? Are the leaves properly sized? Does it appear to be healthy? Even in the winter, we can kind of tell the vigor because we have nice large buds, all the way out to the tips of the branches, all the way through the tree, not a lot of dead branches. That's what I mean by vigor. A vigorous tree, a healthy vigorous tree can survive a whole lot of stuff.
0: What another way to say that is it's healthy and meeting its potential?
1: Yes, that would be a great way to say it, Okay, but we actually use the word vigor on the ISA forms.
0: Tell us about your business and how people can reach you.
1: My business is called Speaking for the Trees. You can reach us on social media. at Speaking for Trees. Just take out the V. You can call me at 770-823-5374, or you can email me at Christie spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E, at speakingfortrees.com. Probably also worth mentioning, I also have a background in landscaping and I'm currently a Georgia certified landscape professional. So if you do have a site plan and you want somebody to review it, if you question the right plant choices, always give me a call. I'm happy to review those.
0: This has been episode 114, The Marvels of Trees. Exploring their beauty, diversity, and importance with Christy Bryant. This is an encore presentation and remix of episode seven. Thank you, Christy. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time.